they feel co connected again in the heroic collective battle with the object of anxiety, for instance, the virus. And, and that way, it seems as if they're, the root cause of the problem, which was the loneliness, is solved, is away, is taken away. They felt lone, lonely, and now they feel connected again. Welcome back to Reconditioned with me, Lauren Vaknin. So I've just finished recording with Matthias Desmet, um, all about mass formation and his book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. And I know that it might sound like a really deep, intense topic, and it might just be like, mm, not today, I want something lighter. But it's a not it's not too long, and I'm really urging you and asking you, even if it's not something you'd normally listen to, to listen to this. Because I don't know about you, and wherever you stand or stood on the pandemic or any related issues with pharma, with any stuff like that, you don't have to agree with me or come from the same background or have the same um, views or opinions on it. But we all have worries about how technology is going, about how we're being led into totalitarianism when it comes to phones and, you know, microchips and the rest of it. I, as a parent, especially, I know that that worries me for my kids' futures. And I know that most parents, regardless of where you stand on any other topic that I speak about, whether you agree with it or not, that you will probably feel like that too. And this stuff comes down to the psychology of totalitarianism. So I hope that you will um, listen to this and listen to it with an open heart and an open mind and perhaps um, come away with some knowledge that you um, didn't have before like I did when I read the book and when I now spoke to him um, so please do have a listen as usual get in touch let me know what you think about the episode it's it's a pretty different episode to usual um, it's not light in any way and you know Matthias is 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 quite is so you know devoted to what he does he's very intense with it um, and intentional as well with what he's trying to achieve here despite the amount of backlash he's had from releasing this book and from the work and, and what he talks about publicly. Um, so get in touch, let me know your views. Uh, you can get in touch with me on Instagram at Lauren Vaknin or through the website laurenvaknin.co.uk. And um, don't forget that all my recommendations, I mention it again, because I still get messages of which this do you recommend and which that do you recommend? Go to the LV Recommends page, pretty much anything you could possibly want in relation to health, growth, whether it's supplements, whether it's, I don't know, anything, absolutely anything. Most of it's there. All my recommendations are there, most of them with discount codes as well. Um, so that is there. So thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. I truly appreciate everyone who stops and listens to this podcast and I appreciate it. Number one, obviously for my ego self, but also from the perspective of the collective, that each person who is doing one thing at least, even if it's just one thing a day to improve their well-being and enhance their growth, you are serving the collective. So thank you. I appreciate you. If you haven't yet heard, I have just released a free, yes, free journaling course. 
If you've always wanted to try journaling but just don't know where to start, or you've been hearing how powerful journaling can be but you just don't understand why, or you want to create a daily practice that enhances your life but you just need a little support in doing that without it costing you anything, this course will do all that for you. It is packed with content that will show you just why journaling is important, how to do it, where to start and how to make it work for you. It is completely free and that is as a way for me to pay it forward because journaling really is one of the most integral parts of my growth practice and I want to give that to you. All you have to do is click on the link in the show notes to get the course sent directly to your inbox. Matthias Desmet is recognized as the world's leading expert on the theory of mass formation as it applies to the COVID-19 pandemic. He is Professor of Clinical Psychology in the Department of Psychology and Educational Sciences at Ghent University in Belgium and a practicing psychoanalytic psychotherapist. His work has been discussed widely in the media, with his notable interview with Tucker Carlson gaining wide recognition. His book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, was recently released to critical acclaim. So thank you, Matthias, for being here. Thank you for inviting me, Lorraine. I'm happy to be here. Yes, I'm so happy to have you because your book is is truly, I mean, I'd heard you on a couple of podcasts talking about mass formation at the point where I personally was in kind of a deep state of frustration with how everything was going. Um, and then obviously your book goes into how that happened. So before we get into that and talk about all of your amazing work, what have you done so far today to support your wellness? Well, today I got up early, had a healthy breakfast. And I always think that for a human being speaking out, in a sincere and honest way, mm. is the most important thing for, for your health, both psychologically and physically. So that's what I will try to do now with you. <laughs> that sounds perfect. That's, that's all I ask for. So let's start here. Can you explain in, I guess, a sentence or a paragraph, what is mass formation? Oh, mass formation. Mass formation is um, a, typical, a typical kind of group formation, which has a very specific series of effects on, uh, on individual psychological functioning. For instance, uh, when people are in the grip of a mass formation, they uh, cannot take a critical distance anymore of what the group believes in. They are radically willing to self-sacrifice everything that used to be important for them. And um, um, also, they, um, they become radically intolerant for dissonant voices. To the extent that in the end, they uh, try to destroy everyone who doesn't go along with the masses. And once they succeeded in doing so, they start to destroy uh, uh, people in the masses as well. So that's at the phenomenological level what mass formation is. And then in my book, I describe how uh, this phenomenon got stronger and stronger and stronger throughout the last few centuries and how, um, um, how it was the basis for the emergence of the first totalitarian states in history uh, in the beginning of the 20th century. That's what my book is all about. And mm. it, uh, it warns, my book shows that this is all related to a specific view on man and the world, the mechanist, the rationalist view on man and the world. Um, and that we are at risk of... Uh, 
uh, ending up in a new kind of totalitarianism now, a technocratic totalitarianism, uh, if we don't watch out. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, just kind of like almost triggering me there, knowing when you were talking about kind of how um, just all the stuff about how, how people then go against the dissonant voices. So um, I'd love you to talk us through some past examples, like maybe notable examples of mass formation and, and kind of how it came to be to give people a deeper understanding on how this works. Yeah, mass formation uh, uh, exists as long as mankind exists. So uh, we have had the Crusades, the witch hunts, uh, the Bartholomew's Night, the French Revolution, the uh, large-scale mass formations of uh, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, indeed. Um, and um, uh, it always mass formation always emerges when a population is in a very specific psychological state. Uh, and a certain set of conditions has to have to be full has to be fulfilled. For instance, uh, the most important condition is that many people have to feel disconnected from their social and natural environment. And um, uh, throughout the last few centuries, the number of people feeling disconnected uh, increased and increased time and time again. And that was due to the uh, industrialization and the mechanization of the world. So uh, the more the higher the level of industrialization, the more mechanization, the more use of technology, the more people feel disconnected and lonely. And then that's the reason why the mass formations uh, became stronger and stronger. So what happens, once people feel disconnected from their natural and social environment, once they end up in this, what Hannah Arendt and the Frankfurter Schule called an atomized state, uh, they um, uh, typically will start to be confronted with lack of meaning making in life. And then um, they will also be confronted afterwards with so-called free-floating anxiety, frustration, and aggression. That means a kind of anxiety, frustration, and aggression in which people don't know what they feel anxious, frustrated, and aggressive for, which is an extremely aversive mental state. Because if you feel anxious and you don't know what you feel anxious for, uh, you just feel completely out of control. Uh, you cannot control your anxiety if you don't know what you feel anxious for. That's what a panic attack is. And uh, if you feel in the same vein, if you feel frustrated and aggressive and you don't know what you feel frustrated and aggressive for, you cannot take your aggression out on something or someone and it piles up in yourself and leads to a very uh, aversive uh, tension in yourself. So, and just before the Corona crisis, all these conditions were fulfilled. Never before in history had there been so many people that felt that felt uh, lonely and isolated. Uh, never before in history there had been so many people who felt uh, a complete lack of meaning making. You can see this in the statistics showing uh, that the number of people people uh, considering their own job to be a so-called bullshit job was extremely high, somewhere in between 40 and 60 percent. And also that the number of people feeling lonely was extremely high, like in Great Britain. Um, Theresa May appointed a minister of loneliness uh, because she recognized this problem. And in the United States, uh, the US Surgeon General mentioned that there was a loneliness epidemic. And also the uh, rates, the anxiety, uh, frustration, aggression rates were extremely high. So all these conditions were fulfilled. And then before the Corona crisis, then something very specific can happen. If under these conditions, a narrative is distributed through the mass media, indicating an object of anxiety and the strategy to deal with that object of anxiety, then all this free-floating anxiety 
might connect to this object of anxiety, and there might be a huge willingness to participate in a strategy to deal with that object of anxiety, for instance, the lockdowns to deal with the virus and the anti-vaxxers, for instance, or the concentration camps to deal with the Jews or the gulags to deal with the aristocracy or the witch hunts to deal with the witches and so on, the crusades to deal with, uh, with the Muslims. And, and every mass formation starts in this way. That's the first step of the mass formation. And the psychological advantage of this first step is that uh, people feel in control now, now of their anxiety and they have the feeling they can, that they can direct their, their frustration and aggression on a scapegoat, on someone, a little bit as uh, Girard says. Mm-hmm. And uh, then a second step happens, which is even more important. Because so many people at the same time participate in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, people feel connected again. They feel connected again in the heroic collective battle with the object of anxiety, for instance, the virus. And and that way, it seems as if the root cause of the problem, which was the loneliness, is solved, is is taken away. They felt lonely, and now they feel connected again. But the big problem, of course, is that uh, a mass is a kind of group which is formed not because individuals connect to each other. A mass is a group which is formed because all individuals separately connect to the collective. The famous solidarity in a mass is never a solidarity between individuals. It's a solidarity between the individual and the collective. And the longer the mass formation exists, the weaker the bonds become between individuals and the stronger the bond between the individuals and the collective. And in the end, the solidarity with the the collective is so much higher than the solidarity with other individuals that everybody starts to snitch on everyone else. Everybody starts to report each other to the state. For instance, I was talking uh, about 10 months ago, I think, with this woman of Iran, Shoref Ishtari, And she mentioned, she lived in Iran during the revolution in Iran, which which was a large-scale process of mass formation. And she mentioned that she had seen how a mother had reported her son to the state and how she hung the news around his neck when he was on the scaffold. And when he was hung, when he died, she claimed to be a heroine for doing what she did. That's the famous end stage of mass formation. And that's why it is so extremely important to understand this process of mass formation, just to be sure, uh, just to understand what we can do to prevent these mass formations, to go to the last and ultimate step. Um, And that's what I explained in my book. I explained that mass formation actually is an an example of, um, is kind of hypnosis, is the, the... Psychological mechanism of mass formation is identical to hypnosis. And as such, it is a process in which uh, people are in the grip of the voice of someone, the voice of a leader. Uh, And that's why totalitarian states, which are always based on mass formation, in contrast with a classical dictatorship, use so much indoctrination and propaganda because they know that their power over the population is based on the voice, the voice of the leaders. 
that's a very important difference, the difference between a classical dictatorship and a, and a totalitarian state. Uh, it's extremely important. Uh, uh, classical dictatorship uh, is based on a very simple, primitive psychological mechanism, just the fear of the population for a small group, which uh, is uh, experienced as a group with a, a very high aggressive potential, uh, and which can provoke so much um, uh, fear in the population that the population accepts that this group unilaterally imposes its social contract to, um, uh, to the population. And um, in a totalitarian state is, is just based on, on, a, on a much more impressive psychological mechanism, which is the mechanism of mass formation. In a totalitarian state, there is first the emergence of a mass in the population, which, is, which then, led by certain leaders, can seize control of society and, uh, and create a completely new kind of state, a new kind of state which doesn't only control public space and political space, as a classical dictatorship does, but which also controls uh, private space, because it has this enormous secret police at its disposal, uh, the secret police, which is this part of the population, probably somewhere in between 20 or 30 percent, which is in the grip of the mass formation and which so fanatically believe this, believes the state narrative that they are willing to report everyone uh, to the state who is not or who they believe is not loyal enough to the state. And so in every family, there is someone or almost in every family, there will be someone who is in the grip of the mass formation. And consequently, uh, in every family, uh, there is a or one or more members of the state secret police, and in that way, private space is perfectly controlled by the by uh, by the totalitarian state, and in a way which classical dictators can only dream of. <laughs> so that's the problem, uh, and that, that leads to a. It, it makes that the totalitarian state has a completely different uh, structure. Uh, than a classical dictatorship. Um, you can see this historically. Uh, for instance, when a classical dictatorship uh, succeeds in silencing the opposition, um, it usually will mitigate its aggression just because the classical dictator has a certain common sense and knows that now that he is in control, he should uh, show the people that he is a good leader, keep them quiet, uh, as to uh, just stay in control. Uh, and in a totalitarian state, exactly the opposite happens. In a totalitarian state, it is exactly at the moment that the state succeeds in silencing the opposition, that a totalitarian state starts to use, starts to unleash its aggressive potentials and starts to show its destructive nature. Just because at that moment, when there is no dissonant voice anymore, the hypnosis is not disturbed anymore by the dissonant voices, becomes complete, and the mass formation goes to the ultimate stage where it becomes convinced that it should destroy everyone who doesn't go along with it. So there is a very remarkable and important difference between a classical dictatorship and a totalitarian state. And the better you understand that, the better you understand that when confronted with totalitarianism, you should never stop speaking out. That's the... Okay, so one of the challenges I hear from you guys the most is how hard it is to drop into meditation 
or even to relax and just feel calm. And you know I speak a lot here about how our bodies have not evolved to manage the level of stress we're faced with today, which means we're constantly in fight or flight mode with our sympathetic nervous systems always activated, which we know leads to depression and anxiety and also chronic health problems. If we want to be well, we have to find ways to mitigate this. We have to do that ourselves. And I believe in merging natural daily practices with the kind of health tech that enables us to counter and mitigate the challenges that modern life throws at us. And the Sensate is one of those products and I wanna tell you about it. So the Sensate is a small palm-sized device that sends infrasonic waves through the chest in order to activate the vagus nerve and calm the autonomic nervous system, which is the body's command center. Together with the specially composed hemispheric audio within the app, you will literally feel calmer after only a short session. I give this to anyone I'm with if I have it on me, which I usually do, and everyone has the same response. It's amazing and I already feel less stressed and where can I get one? Now I'm particularly recommending the Sensate to anyone who suffers from anxiety and wants to help calm the nervous system, those who want to deepen their meditation practice, and people who are looking for ways to be calmer and more grounded. Now most of you know I work with a shaman and he has taught me that our higher intelligence places ideas of health technology in the minds of those who can create and invent these products and i truly believe this to be the case with things like the aura ring the summer vedic even diagnostic devices in hospital and for me i believe that to be true with the sensate we have lived for too long in a high stress state we need more to help us counter that so you can get 20 pounds off the sensate by visiting getsensate.com that's g e T-S-E-N-S-A-T-E.com and using the code Lauren20. That's getsensate.com and the code Lauren20. Thank you to Sensate for partnering with Reconditioned. And now back to the episode. Oh, I, I really hope a lot of people are hearing this. I mean, I know my community and I were um absolutely, you know, taken off Facebook, shadow banned, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know, we went to the rallies in London and and yet none of that was on, um, was show, you know, these rallies with like thousands and thousands of people. It wasn't shown on the media. Um, not one, you know, media outlet showed it. I have a few questions from what you just said. So first of all, when you spoke about, um, you know, it creates kind of heroes, it makes us feel like the hero. That really spoke to me in terms of what we witnessed here. So at eight o'clock, I don't know if you heard about this, you know, during kind of the height of what was happening, eight o'clock every night, people would stand outside their doors and clap for the NHS workers. The National Health Service, and that made everyone feel really united. And that kind of what you were just saying about people feeling part of that community again. Everyone was standing outside their doors. They saw their neighbors maybe for the first time in in however long. People were getting friendly with their neighbors again, um, and it gave people just a sense of belonging. So it really speaks to me when you and I. I remember even standing there watching because I had this this dissonance myself of like, oh, I want to get involved and be this person that, you know, claps for the health workers, but I don't agree that the health workers have been given the right information. And that's why people are, are suffering. Um, but I know that a lot of people will, that will resonate with them as well. Mike, one of my questions for you is you talk about the leaders, but no one felt confident in say Boris Johnson leading us through this so-called pandemic. Who were the leaders during the whole COVID-19 pandemic? That's a very good question. I think the leaders, well, you can situate the leaders of the world, of course, at many different levels. I think you can situate them at the level of the global, of, of the governments. You can situate them at the level of the global institutions. You can situate them 
at the level of the people who control the financial system, mm-hmm. uh, you can situate them at, at many levels. You can situate and but the, and you can also situate them situate them in the masses, the masses themselves. And that's I think that it's very important to keep in mind that we are dealing with a complex emergent phenomenon where many factors uh, work together in an unconsciously coordinated way. Hannah Arendt said, uh, totalitarianism, she said, is always a diabolic pact between the masses and the leaders. So, and their leaders. And you have to distinguish, it's hard to say. You have the public leaders of the the masses, uh, such as Stalin and Hitler uh, in the first half of the 20th century, but that's maybe something else. There are, might also be people who are manipulating the masses from behind the screens. That's that that's also true. So who are the leaders? That's hard to say. Um, um, but I think the most important thing is to uh, keep in mind that, um, uh, for instance, what's so typical about totalitarianism is that the point of gravity in a totalitarian state is never situated uh, it's not so much situated in the leaders, it's situated in the masses. The point of gravity is the mass that believes in um, in, a, in a certain ideology, a certain narrative, uh, which is distributed through uh, by the leaders. Uh, and in this case, I think it makes sense to consider the global institutions at least very important and crucial, um, such as the WEF and the UN and, and so on. Um, but the strange thing is that when in a classical dictatorship, uh, a substantial part of the uh, dictators, the dictatorial regime is destroyed, there is a good chance that a dictatorship will collapse. But that doesn't apply to a totalitarian state. If in a totalitarian state, a substantial part of the, of the, of the totalitarian regime is destroyed, it will just be replaced. That's why Stalin knew that he could perfectly perfectly eliminate 60% of his own communist party, that it just would be replaced and continue because the point of gravity is in the masses. And in the end, what he should really, I think in the final analysis, the real enemy is never situated in another, in another human being. The real enemy is always situated in a specific ideology, a view on man and the world, which is the root cause of uh, totalitarianism and that view on man in the world is the mechanist materialist view on man in the world a view on man in the world which believes that the entire universe is like a dead uh, mecha- mechanistic machine-like entity which can be perfectly understood and described and controlled and manipulated in a rationalist way in a rational way and it was this view of man in the world which puts the population and a, and a mental state which made it vulnerable for mass formation. And it was also this view on man in the world, which created this new elite, a new elite which believed that it was their holy duty to control and manipulate the population through indoctrination and propaganda. So I've been explaining the mechanism of mass formation in the population But what's equally important is how this new elite emerged throughout the last two centuries. Immediately after the French Revolution, when the Ancien Ancien Regime collapsed, it was replaced by a more modern, 
democratic system, not immediately, but in a few steps, it was a, we, we could witness the emergence of um, uh, modern democracies. And um, very noticeably, notably, immediately after the French Revolution, the first institutes, institutes for modern propaganda emerged. Propaganda existed before as well, like in, in the church used propaganda, but in a completely different way. It was something completely different. Uh, but the modern propaganda started to emerge immediately after uh, the French Revolution. And Napoleon, actually, was the first who uh, started the Bureau d'Opinion Publique, uh, an office for to manipulate public opinion. And then... Uh, after a few decades in the beginning of the 20th century, in particular with uh, the First World War, uh, enormous propaganda machinery was established in the Western world. Uh, and after the Second World War, it remained there. So it, and after the Second World War, uh, the first, the, the, the fathers, the founding fathers of modern propaganda wrote their works, such as Trotter, Lippmann, uh, Bernays, wrote their books on propaganda. And someone like Bernays, for instance, whom I know best, um, clearly mentions in his book that uh, modern political leaders are not real leaders anymore because they have to be elected and re-elected by the population uh, if they want to keep their position. And that means that they have to give the population what it wants, implying that actually they have to follow the population. And Bernays described that if uh, the elite wanted to be capable of controlling the population, they would need to establish a government which operated from behind the screens and which uh, constantly manipulated the population as to make them go in a direction they wanted them to go, as to make them behave as they wanted them to behave. That's just, it's written like that, like that in his book, Propaganda. And he is considered the founding father of modern public relations and propaganda. So, and after Bernays, uh, this continued, of course, uh, in the Second World War, um, or, uh, well, Bernays was still alive in the Second World War, definitely. But it continued, and the propaganda machinery was developed, developed further and further and further up until now we are dealing with a public space which, which is constantly saturated through propaganda in all kinds of different ways. Propaganda which is uh, created by uh, and controlled by large global institutions in the end, I guess, or by other powerful players, uh, and which uh, can pretty well, or which has a huge impact on the psychological functioning of the population. Not as much on, ev not, uh, uh, on everyone, uh, but most people are really in the grip of it. So, and that's, it's this, if you take into account then that the population throughout the last few, few centuries uh, became more and more isolated, experienced more and more lack of meaning making, more and more free-floating anxiety, frustration, and aggression, which made them even more vulnerable to indoctrination propaganda. Then you realize that 
we are in the perfect situation to create a new to kind of totalitarianism, which, as Hannah Arendt said, will no longer be a, a, a fascist or a communist uh, totalitarianism, but a technocratic totalitarianism, which is led by dull bureaucrats and technocrats rather than by uh, gang leaders such as Stalin and Hitler. Um, yeah. Which is what's happening now. Um, so a question I have is that there will be some cognitive dissonance happening that, that I see with people who can acknowledge that something like mass formation or totalitarianism was happening in just, I've used it again, but just as an example, because people feel very strongly about it, say Nazi Germany, but can still not see that that's happened with the most recent, with the COVID-19 stuff. How would you explain to them how it's exactly the same? And then leading on from that, and perhaps completely related to that, the you have mentioned there are kind of statistics and percentage that is almost that is always with every um, new situation that happens in history, usually the same um, in terms of a, a percentage of the amount of people that fall victim to mass formation and those that are the dissonant voices. And what are those numbers? You know, it's, it's, it's hard. Those are rough estimates, of course, but it's probably about 20 or 30 percent of the population, which is really in the grip of mass formation, might be about 60, 70 percent of the people who silently go along with them, with the masses, without being really in the grip of the mass formation. So the silent, uh, there is a silent majority who feels and knows that uh, there's something wrong with the narrative, but who just do not speak out, and then there is a minority, which might uh, fluctuate somewhere between ten to one to ten percent or something. Can be extremely small, which uh, is not in the grip of the mass formation, and which also prefers to go against the masses and to speak out. Uh, this small minority might perfectly win, and might be stronger than the masses. And the most important thing they should realize is that they have to continue to speak out. There were there are exo historical examples of very small minorities who uh, defied the masses and who, in the end, uh, prevailed. So it's perfectly possible. Um, yeah, I, and 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 I think you do see that. You see with every situation that there are people that speak out, but a lot prevail, which I think is happening now, and we're seeing that now. But then a lot also, you know, in, in the, you know, people got caught doing that in Nazi Germany. They, you know, or the witch hunts or whatever it might have been, you know, during slavery, they were murdered. So it's a, it's yes, a difficult situation. It is, it is, of course, and it's always dangerous to go against the masses. But uh, the most important thing I think is that we continue to speak out before the masses. Uh, get to the last stage where they become extremely aggressive. And so that's the important thing, I believe. Yeah. Why is it, and probably you've explained this already, um, but that people who have fallen victim to mass formation so strongly, and even as we've seen, like vitriolically oppose those who question the accepted narrative, why do they get so aggressive? Well, just because once people are in the grip of mass formation, they, uh, they don't want to wake up anymore. Uh, and the dissonant voice threatens to wake them up. So it, and if the masses would wake up, they would be put in the situation of before the mass formation again, which means the loneliness, the lack of meaning making, the 
anxiety, frustration, and aggression. And on top of that, of course, they, once they are in the mass formation, they, are, they have the satisfaction of directing all the frustration and aggression to the people who are not in a mass formation. And they also don't want to lose that. So th that's, it's, it's a kind of a toxic mixture which makes them extremely intolerant uh, for dissonant voices uh, uh, and which makes them dangerous, of course. Um, and is this what makes people trust science blindly because you do talk about science in the book a lot and how um well a quote a quote you've said which i'd like to read out is at its birth science was synonymous with open-mindedness with a way of thinking that banished dogmas and question beliefs as it evolved however it also turned itself into ideology belief and prejudice so it was nothing it was nothing to do with the science so we've seen over the years you know huge failures within medical research like thalidomide and des and you mentioned tylenol in the book we know that that happens right from a logical perspective we have seen it ourselves with our own eyes so how is it that regardless of the fact that we know that the pharma industry can be extremely corrupt and there have been many examples of it that people still are able to put their blind trust into them when something well, like a pandemic happens, like all of a sudden, it, it, you know, it's going to be okay. Yes, yes, because because indeed that's something very striking. What we have seen now, in my opinion, in public spaces, that is not science. And the, 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 the COVID narrative had nothing to do with science for me. It had to do with ideology and it had to do with indoctrination propaganda. Uh, but the reason why people so blindly go along with the narrative is because when people buy into a narrative that leads to mass formation, they don't do so because they believe that this narrative is right or accurate or something uh, from a scientific point of view. They do so uh, because it uh, yields these uh, psychological advantages that I, I have been, that I was mentioning uh, uh, 15 minutes ago. Just it, it, it uh, allows them to couple their anxiety to a mental representation. It allows them to, um, to, uh, 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 satisfy the frustration and aggression it, and definitely also very important maybe the most important thing at least in the first stages of the mass formation is that it is that it gives them this new social bond it's this mental intoxication which is created by the combination of all these psychological factors that is so attractive to people so so enticing and the reason why they buy into the narrative is because of these facts these things and no matter how absurd the narrative become, becomes, people will, will refuse to wake up because they want to continue to enjoy these advantages. Mm. And um, uh, even more, uh, for instance, the corona measures, like all narratives that lead to mass formation, impose a kind of uh, concrete behavior to the masses. And this these behaviors, for instance, the, the corona measures, the mask wearing, uh, the vaccination uh, mandates and so on, function as rituals, rituals through which the individual shows that it belongs to a collective mm. in that its personal interests are less important than the collective interests. Yeah, and we even saw that kind of with the narrative, like people, when people would say, oh, have you tested? Yeah, I'm still positive. Oh, okay, you know, don't come into work until you're negative. And it became this like narrative that people felt proud about. Yes, absolutely. And um, so, um, if you consider the nature of a ritual, then you see that a ritual um, is always a kind of behavior that is 
meaningless from a pragmatic point of view, and that demands a sacrifice of the individual, <laughs> which means that the more absurd the measures become and the more uh, they demand of the individual, uh, the better they will function as a ritual, at least for this part of the population that is really in the grip of mass formation, which is not so much. Uh, um, so another quote from your book was, with each new step, we lose more of our freedoms until we reach a final destination where human beings are reduced to QR codes in a large technocratic medical experiment. How much do you believe that is going to happen? And how do those of us who are, you know, the dissonant voices, are, will our voices be heard to stop that from happening? Our, we don't know how, how things will evolve exactly, but uh, our voices definitely will have an impact because... Uh, when someone is not in the grip of mass formation uh, and tries to wake the people and wake, wake, wake the people up in the masses, he usually won't succeed to convince them. That's typical. So the, most people will refuse to wake up. But that doesn't mean that his voice, his speech, doesn't have an impact. It has an impact, a very important impact. Uh, Gustave Le Bon described this in the 19th century already: that uh, the voices of the people who are not in the grip of the mass formation won't succeed in waking up the masses, but that they will have a very important effect. And it is that they will constantly disturb the mass formation, make it less deep uh, and prevent it from going to the ultimate stage where the masses start to commit overt cruelties. And so uh, that's what uh, we have to be aware of. We have to be aware of the fact that it's not because we do not convince the people and we cannot really wake them up that uh, uh, we will uh, our voice will have no effect. Eh? And we also constantly have to be aware that also the group who is not going along with a major mass formation might fall prey to another mass formation because there might be more than one mass formation in a society. So it's extremely important, I think, to continue to speak out in a very open-minded way, just not trying to convince other people, but just sticking to our ethical right uh, uh, of articulating our own opinion to the best of our own uh, uh, understanding. And that's what we have to continue to do. So I have a question and I, and I wonder if it's a strange question for you or maybe one you've never been asked, but I, I kind of like to, I teach about, you know, the masculine and feminine energies and the importance of the balancing of those. And we don't see that in governments at all. It's very much, as you were explaining, kind of the mechanistic logistical side of things that to me that screams kind of masculine energy and we don't really use intuition or anything like that within governments. How important would you say that kind of reclaiming that balance is when it comes to leadership and in order to kind of stop this level of totalitarianism? I don't know. <laughs> I, think, I thought it would be a strange important. question. For, for me, for me, um, um, the masculine and the feminine must be unbalanced, definitely. Uh, and uh, for me, uh, I interpret that in the first place at the level of speech. Uh, and speech, for a truly open-minded speech to exist, there must be someone who has the courage to admit that he has a lack of knowledge, to admit that he doesn't know everything, so as to be capable of listening in an open-minded way to the other. And the other must, to the best of his own capacities, be capable of feeling what the other's lack of knowledge is and trying to say something 
that appeals to this lack of knowledge in the other. The first position, having the courage to offer your lack of understanding, is primary of, uh, a feminine position. And the second position, the sensitivity to feel where the lack of knowledge is situated, is a masculine position. And both the man and the woman should circulate and rotate across these two positions, because otherwise, if a man, for instance, always sticks to the position of being the one who has to give the answer to, uh, the, uh, to, 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 to a woman, in the end, he also stops to be a man. So being a man and a woman is something very, com it's not very complex, but it demands the capacity to uh, give and receive uh, through speech. Um, so I could tell much more about that. I and my, 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 next, my next book will be about that, actually. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. The nature of, of uh, uh, masculinity and femininity in, in relation to speech, and it will also be about uh, the phenomenon of truth speech in general, the phenomenon of truth speech in contrast with uh, propaganda and indoctrination. So it will be about speech. Great. And about the, the, the fact, the strange fact that in one way or another, we stopped uh, being aware of the importance of truth speech for a human being and for human living together. Last question. How much backlash have you had? A lot now. Yeah. And after how are you my, managing that? After my interview with Tucker Carlson, I ended up in a huge uh, media war, both in America and in Europe and in Belgium here. Uh, and well, I, I, I remain quiet. Uh, I stay quiet. I, I mean, uh, I don't care too much, but uh, it has consequences for my job, for instance. So that's, uh, but I knew that. I know that uh, from the beginning that uh, when I started to speak out, I knew that I would continue and I knew that there might be consequences of my, of, uh, of speaking out. I accept that uh, and I will continue to speak out. Uh, I think, uh, in the years to come, we all might lose a lot, both the people who go along with the system and the people who refuse to go along with the system. But we just should make sure that we don't lose the only thing that is really important in this life. And it is uh, our ethical principles and our humanity. Matthias Desmet, thank you so much for your time. I recommend that everyone go and buy this book. The, Psych the Psychology of Totalitarianism is extremely eye-opening. Um, thank you for being here on Reconditioned. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Laureen, and thank you for listening to me. Thank you. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Reconditioned. I am honestly so grateful to each and every person that tunes in. Thank you also for taking responsibility for your own well-being. You should know that just by choosing to listen to podcasts like this that further your well-being, you're moving more deeply into abundance consciousness. Now, don't forget, I have a bunch of free resources over at laurenvacneen.co.uk, as well as every recommendation you could ever need in regards to your well-being on the LV Recommends page, all categorized for your ease. Thank you also to our sponsors. These episodes would not be possible without them, so make sure to check them out and get some pretty awesome discounts on the show notes. And of course, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so that you can get updated each time a new one is released. Thank you. I appreciate Appreciate you.
Reconditioned is proud to be working with Women for Women International, a charity that supports women survivors of war in eight war-torn countries around the world. You can help a woman survivor of war transform her life today by visiting womenforwomen.org.uk forward slash donate.